Today on the Grid Snaps podcast, we're thankful for games. So hey, this is Rob Howard. I'm back here with Kip Carbone on the Grid Snaps podcast. This is our third full-length episode, and we're here today to talk about our favorite games. This is kind of a Thanksgiving uh, holiday-themed episode. We were going to do an episode on Star Wars Battlefront 2, and we still are, actually. However, the guest I had lined up uh, didn't quite work out uh, for the short term. Uh, it gets tough doing podcast scheduling this time of year, right? Because people are taking vacations and seeing family and all the rest of it. So in lieu of that, we are going to do a Battlefront 2 episode uh, soon, sometime in December. But right now, we're going to talk about Kip and I's favorite games. But before we do that, Kip, uh, let's talk about last episode a little bit, which was Uncharted 4. Uh, do you have any thoughts at all on that game that you want to tie up any loose ends? Gobble, 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 gobble. Um, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, we, we talked a bit about linear story and AAA games and how, like, how that all fits together and how you can do that still without being a AAA game and, like, clever devices that developers can use. And actually, we talked about Peace Walker doing that, and a game I worked on, a Batman one, kind of did an homage to that similarly with some uh, storytelling aspects where it was kind of like a graphic novel, inter- interactive type thing. So it can be done. And you must be, and, uh, you must be talking about uh, Arkham Blackgate, probably, I'm thinking, yes, is what you're talking about. Yeah, one. Arkham Blackgate. Arkham Asylum, Gotham, something or other. I forgot the name of it. But A game, as I remind Kip endlessly, I actually played and completed all the way through. I, uh, you know, it's, it's When you work with people in the game industry, you're sort of fanboys of each other's games, and that was one of them that uh, I... <laughs> well, hey, it's a good, it's a, a good Metroidvania-style Batman adventure. I highly recommend it, and it's... Out now for everything. When I bought it, it yes, was like it the 3DS version, I think. Yeah, I worked on every skew of that that darn thing. So it, <laughs> from 3DS to uh, I guess it's out on PS4 maybe now. I guess PS3 something. But anyway, yeah, it, it did get yeah, it got the full the full nine. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, that's like one instance where you can use like a. I mean, that's that's one that I've I've done. But there's also a lot of other things you can you know clever. Uh, storytelling devices or maybe not doing a lot of things that are super expensive for the dev like right. hey we're going to do full on you know cinematics or we're going to do you know facial lip syncs or things of that nature that you can you can kind of still get like awesome storytelling that's linear but maybe you don't like tackle the really expensive things or you know there's there's many different ways that you can you can make a high quality product without having to go about it in the the normal AAA fashion. I'm not really describing too many of them but <laughs> no, I totally get cuz we we worked for, you know, some similar type studios what we like to call blue collar game development. Uh, with much love, much, much, much love there. Uh, and so a lot of what you talk about reminds me of what we did at Human Head Studios for Lost Within, uh, which was the survival horror thing we did that needed to have kind of a console quality 
but was on like tablets and phones and things. And, and so with there, it's kind of funny reading about how, uh, how that studio in the UK that I'm blanking on that did, uh, uh, Hellblade, uh, Ninja Theory. That's right. Ninja Theory. Yes. They, they're talking about how, Oh, we totally put together this kind of mocap studio in our conference room. And I, I kind of chuckled when I thought about that because, Human head. I mean, we we've always done that. We we have a mocap set up, like in in the meeting room in our case, and it's we've used that for years and years to do in house mocap. Uh, so you know that's kind of one thing they did to kind of have high quality animation in house without having to go to an outside uh, source, and that's what we did as well for motion capture on on Lost Within. And the other thing we did on Lost Within is. A lot of our cinematics didn't use any motion capture at all. In fact, there was only just a few select key scenes that did. Most of them used like kind of a a freeze frame style of of cinematic where it wasn't 2D hand drawn. It was in 3D, but you were using kind of frozen posed models uh, that were arranged in like a certain way. Like, for instance, if you had like a hospital disaster, this was, you know, in an asylum. So let's say you had like patients breaking loose and causing havoc you might have a scene that have that have that has like a bunch of orderlies posed in kind of panicked ways and like you know crazy people running through and, and gurneys that are like kind of all frozen and in some cases you can actually walk through those environments like and kind of look at them uh like you're sort of a, kind of a disembodied spirit if you will um, and, and then, you know, we would have kind of these pulses or flashes in time. And when that would happen, all the poses would change. So it's kind of like a super slow animation in that sense. Uh, and I thought that was kind of a nice middle ground between like a fully kind of orchestrated, fully done cinematic versus even a 2D approach. Uh, so I, you know, I do think there's lots of ways to get around this, I mean, I think of, uh, you know, I mentioned these games a lot, the Yakuza games, where they'll have all kinds of cutscenes that are done just with canned, uh, sort of in-engine stuff, and they get the idea across, uh, and, you know, I know that the assumption, Kip, is that fans will just slaughter you if you're not using the latest and best and, and most polished, but I actually think that the community is a little bit smarter than that. I, I think when certain games, and, and we're not going to say which, which games because you know, we keep things positive here, but like, that's right, never name names. Uh, when certain games run afoul, it's when they promote themselves as this is everything in the kitchen sink. You should be able to put this thing in and not see one nanosecond of of roughness and and when you know they they mess that up then you know you've set the expectations really high it's like if i go into you know if i i go into the bowling alley that's a strange analogy since I, it's probably been like you know 15 years since i've been bowling but if i go in the bowling alley and and declare to everyone that i'm going to get a strike every frame and i like get get a bunch of spares i mean that's a good game but i'm going to get laughed at because i set that expectation and I think that's what happens a lot. And if you kind of say, hey, look, we're delivering you an awesome experience of a certain degree of polish, but, you know, we want to keep making these games. We want to be profitable and so we can give you these cool experiences. So you have to understand that we're being smart about where we're spending the money and these other areas we're not. I, I think the market is smart enough uh, to differentiate that. But that's just my, you know, uh, my jabbering. I could be completely wrong 
So anyway, like, and by the way, you know, since we're such a new podcast still, I want to mention this has kind of become our format where, yes, the actual episode's about something else, but our first segment is usually wrapping up the previous episode and, and maybe just talking about what the heck we want to talk about for the first time. <laughs> it, but, is, it is our podcast, know. so we should be able to talk about That's right. <laughs> what it's the heck our, we want to talk uh, about. It's, it's like they say in design, say yes to the player, always say yes to the player, always say yes to the podcaster. We can talk about whatever we want other than things that would get us in trouble. We don't talk about those things. today's episode is what we're thankful for for games our favorite games i kind of wanted to have one of these where we just talked about and i'm not talking about games of of 2017 we'll probably do an end of year podcast at some point even if it's after the end of year because again everyone's traveling and all that so who knows but for now i thought it'd be good just to talk about like you know our favorite games really of all time and before I get into it, I'll say that I think I speak for Kip also when I say, we're, of course, we're not going to hit every game we think is awesome. That would be ridiculous. No, We'd be here yeah, all yeah. night. We'll do like uh, the major <laughs> highlights, I think. Of just, yeah, yeah. And even and that, like, we're going to go probably so briefly over each one. Like, we'll see, what, we'll see how it what shakes out, I guess. We'll see what shakes out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll we'll talk about some, and then later we'll be like, why didn't I mention that? In fact, there's a whole bunch of honorable mentions that I just I'm not going to have time. Um, so let's do it like this. I'll mention one. We'll talk about it. You'll mention one. We'll talk about it, <clears throat> and we'll just keep going back and forth. Okay. Uh, and what okay, we like so, about it then? Like, I like this game because of right. Yeah, it's going to be like an assignment I had at at SMU by Professor Gary Brubaker, where we had to like reverse engineer why a game was popular. And if we just said because it was awesome, we'd fail it. Uh, we'll try to do a little bit better than that. We'll try to dig into actual design elements that we like about the game and, and elements of the craft that we like about it, uh, of course, as we do here. That's the whole point of the show. Uh, so I'm going to start by going back to the 8-bit era. Now, Kip has no obligation to follow my format. He can start with a with a game that's unreleased that he's played a beta of, if he wants. That would be weird, but he could do that. Uh, so I'm going to go all the way back to the 8-bit era and talk about a game called Faxanadu. Uh, this is a RPG, a side-scrolling RPG made by Falcom, which is a company just outside of Tokyo uh, in Japan, of course. And this was released by uh actually by hudson it was uh they were licensing that from falcom i believe and hudson developed this 
and released it on the NES in the late 1980s. And again, it's a side-scrolling RPG. Uh, I described it to Kip earlier today as Zelda 2 without the overworld bits. It's kind of roughly what it's like. Uh, and actually, what's kind of interesting is this series has kind of kept on going. The the Xanadu series, actually, Fax Xanadu is... It's the F is the Famicom, so that's why they called it that. The the main series, which they made for like Japanese computers, and they actually have a Vita game called Tokyo Xanadu that they released in 2015. So they kept on making these games. I know. I mean, I if you look at Tokyo Xanadu on YouTube, it, it has like zero resemblance to Fax Xanadu, other than other than being an RPG. Uh, it has no other resemblance other than that. Uh, but they kept kind of releasing games under that line. But Fax Xanadu is basically Famicom Xanadu is basically the the play on words they're they're making. So why the heck do I like this game so much that I would mention it in a favorites? Well, I would say that what's really cool about it is that the game is based on a very distinct world, and it's a world that feeds into everything you do in the game, or at least the feeling of everything you do in a game. And I, I find this is something that JRPGs are actually quite good at, and I'll mention this again later with a more modern JRPG if, if we get to talk about that today. And that is that the world of Faxanadu is a tree. Basically, it's a kingdom or a world that, that's in a giant tree. I suppose that the player is something like the size of maybe a large ant or something, just to give you the sense of scale. Uh, you belong to like a kingdom of elves that lives on the base of the tree and, and you start the game, it shows you returning from a long journey, kind of a really cool 8-bit kind of Ninja Gaiden-esque cutscene, that kind of style, and it shows you kind of walking into the town, and but, but it's like deserted, it's apocalypse, hardly anyone's left and there's like just one person and they say, go see the king, and the king's like, stuff's happened, you gotta go fix it, and then you, you kind of ascend up the tree you, you as you play the game you actually keep going up 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 the tree more and more and you do all the usual rpg things you get better equipment you level up uh you get money you talk to npcs uh the game has fantastic music but just that really distinctive world design uh that kind of informs everything about the game is what i really like about it cool cool yeah uh i never actually played faxander i remember seeing the cartridge in the video rental store, and then on maybe Nintendo Power? Yeah, I think it debuted, like, I read today that it debuted number six on their kind of rankings list they would do, and then it just kind of dropped, because it was never a really popular game. It was a highly rated game, but not a very popular one, so um, it had really cool box art. Uh, you know, it had kind of a beige background if I think a shield or something like that on the, on the cover uh it's I still have a Faxanadu cart in my possession now uh so that's how much I like it it's also a password save game uh system so you, you know you don't have to worry about replacing a battery or anything like that you do have to write down these ridiculously long passwords but you know that that's the price you pay uh back then so um so Kip uh why don't you talk about a favorite game of yours uh, one of my favorite games was The Adventures of Lolo. No, just kidding. <laughs> no, somebody, no. I don't want to, we don't want to rip on any games, old or new. Uh, 
That's actually a pretty good game. I like that game. But uh, your favorite the, game was Platoon, the NES adaptation of Platoon. That's no, that that game is painful <laughs> to play. It's all Platoon is a ripoff. Well, not a ripoff. I don't know which one came first, but it's very similar to Bayou Billy. With the yeah, uh, you know, it kind of is actually. Now that you mention it, because it has like that element where you're like shooting with a gun, and then I think you're driving, and then and you're kind of. Walk, you're definitely walking in Bayou Billy with the stick hitting things, but it is like a similar to the layout of, of Bayou Billy. But my game that I like that was like a big mind blowing event uh, for me on the NES was Dragon Warrior, the first one. Oh, yeah! Oh, yeah! And I kind of came in contact with this because my mom signed me up for Nintendo Power. And it came free with a, a subscription, a year-long subscription. Yes, that's right. I remember getting that also. That that was like the most amazing thing ever to get a free game. Yeah. Which was like in in the mind of a child is might as well <laughs> you, you know that's like getting hundreds that's of dollars. That's fifty dollars. Can you believe that? That's fifty dollars. Yeah. They're giving this for free, mom. Right. What is that like? Ten thousand dollars in today's money? It is. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's like ten thousand. Right. <laughs> Uh, but it had like a bundle of stuff. You got like, I mean, it may have been like two sheets of paper, but but I remember you got like a map and then the book and then you got the Nintendo Power issue that was about, maybe it was about Dragon I don't know, like, but it came with a bundle of stuff and that was like in the days when Nintendo had their like live action commercials. So it had like this knight riding, you know, white horse and it looked, you know, super awesome and like wow that looks just oh my god you know and i don't even know how i got them to sign up for it they pro- I probably gave them some number to call and they, they were like well okay here it is and then um but then playing it that was sort of the hype behind it but then playing it also it you know was like the first rpg i'd ever come in contact with and it was like oh my god you know you can you remember, you, like you got like a bamboo stick was your first weapon, and then you got a sword, and then actually your little character, which you know it's like a tiny little sprite, had like it went from like a brown stick to like a a gray stick. Wow, that's the sword, you know, on the on the screen. You you actually get that. It changes and right, right. You know, you upgrade your your weapons and your gear, and it you could see it like wow, okay, now I'm a lot stronger, and that was like my first kind of experience with an RPG. And uh, was super fun, you know. I mean, I'd like to go back and play it now and see what what it would be like. But um, you know, that was like I don't know if that was the first one. I know Dragon Warrior is has a different name in Japan, isn't it? Yeah, yeah like I Dragon believe it Quest. is uh, Dragon Quest. That's right. Yeah, probably and the fans. The emails we're gonna get when we jeez, ah. these dumb <laughs> skulls. They don't know any of this stuff. But. Um, no, it, it was a game in Japan that like was so popular when it came out that it actually, I believe, it caused them to release games at different times because they didn't want kids to like like skip school or something. I remember so <laughs> they, like so Dragon Dragon Warrior or Dragon Quest in in Japan was a massive yeah. hit, and it actually Absolutely. like uh, just as an aside, it it really had ramifications in the Japanese video game industry because it it's really one of the reasons why. I believe Zelda 2 was done the way it was done. I think even Zelda itself was something like a reaction to uh, the the early JRPGs that were starting to happen at that time and Nintendo kind of thinking we need to uh, kind of make things that are like this but are 
kind of in our own vein. So like that, that was felt. I know that for sure that 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 game design was uh, very impactful. And then they had, I think I played up to the third one, but after the first one, you actually had party members and they had different specialties, which was pretty awesome. And you could get on like a ship and kind of sail around the world. And I guess it, with all of them, it had like an actual kind of overworld, you know, like a, a world you were in and then you'd go into dungeons and it had different areas that some were like a desert, some were a forest. And it sounds like, because this is something that like, like, because with Dragon, the original Dragon War is kind of interesting about it is that you, you didn't actually have a party. You, you just yeah, had like... just you. Yeah, just you. And so like, it, it really was like the most... Really, I find uh, you, you know a beauty in its simplicity. You know, you don't even have the what would become the stereotypical. We're going to line up your people on one side and and their people on the other side, and and then each one takes their turn fighting. It's it's no. You see a a static picture of a slime, and you'll see like maybe a little animated sprite that indicates that it was hit. And and yeah, that's I think the it flashed feedback. red. Flashed red. Yeah, that's the feedback that you get, and so, uh, but yet that was enough. Uh, that was enough to get the idea across. Yeah, so this I'm reading here on Wikipedia the uh, the game cost fifty dollars retail. The magazine subscription fee was only twenty dollars. Holy cow! They took a bath on that one. Respect. It still sold five hundred thousand units though with that. I think, and so respectively, it's like ninety seven dollars the game would have cost, but only thirty nine dollars. In today's money. Yeah, I think it was really smarter than though because I think the, the thing they're recognizing was that there, there seemed to be a thread in, in kind of the early distribution of these games where they, there wasn't a lot of confidence that we'd like them in the West, that they'd be too complicated. It's like, I believe the origin of the 900 number you can call for Nintendo to get tips was when they released The Legend of Zelda. They thought Americans are never going to understand this. So they, that's the reason why they had that tip hotline. And so they're always doing things like that to try to uh, make sure that we were getting, you know, a solid experience. Uh, they seem to be a little more confident in their own uh, citizenry <laughs> to sort of understand understand these games. And in a way, I think they were right because the, the JRPG wouldn't, as you know, wouldn't become really a mainstream uh, kind of genre until at least... Final Fantasy 3, a.k.a. 6, but most certainly Final Fantasy 7 on PlayStation 1. So it took a long time for that genre to really establish itself. Yep, but it, this one bit me hard, and then I kind of was on a big RPG kick after this. Of like, this is sort of my main bread and butter for a while. <laughs> playing these what struck me is that you i mean here's the thing about platformers i mean platformers are cool and fun and everything but like they're always going to be just a little bit abstract because you're looking at a side view or a slice 
of a world, and and they don't really try hard for them to make sense. And and there's something about the overhead view of the RPG which kind of roots it into reality a little bit. It, it's a little bit more escapist, I think, than uh, the side scrolling genre could ever possibly be. So that it just had a different feel for me, a different level of immersion, even when the technology was primitive. Here's a game from the 16-bit era now uh, that I want to bring up that is a personal favorite, certainly on my personal Mount Rushmore of games, and that would be ActRaiser by Enix before they became Square Enix. Uh, It was actually developed by uh, a company called, let's see, uh, ActRaiser would be Quintet. Yes, that's right. I knew it was a musical term of some sort, and that's why I was kind of stumbling over it, but... Uh, yeah, like uh, Act Razor was a game that I played fairly early uh, in my kind of time on the Super Nintendo, and it was released in North America in 1991, so it was released relatively early in the Super Nintendo's life. And, you know, when we talked about Uncharted 4 last time, we talked about Gestalt and the idea of the whole being, you know, sort of greater than the sum of its parts. And Act Razor is one of the great early examples of this because it was really two games, two separate games fused together. And each game by itself was perfectly competent, but probably not that exciting. But when brought together, uh, it was amazing. So the two games that it contained was it had a side-scrolling action platforming part and then it had like a sim city style world building part uh and by themselves they were competent but they're never going to be as fully fleshed out as you know the side scrolling action was never going to be as good as like a shinobi game that the would that would be made by sega for instance and the the sim part would never be as good as actual sim city which was a very popular game on the super nintendo actually that port But together, in concert, it was just an incredible, incredible experience. And and actually, a few years ago, I played this on Virtual Console. I should try to remember which of these games are, like, available on what what platform. So, like, Faxanadu is, I think it was on the Virtual Console on the Wii, and the original Wii, which you have a very limited time uh, before they cut that service off. So if you're interested uh, in getting it for that platform, I would go do that. Uh, and uh, obviously, uh, Dragon Warrior, I believe, is probably available for numerous things at this point. Uh, uh, and Act Razor is also a, uh, a Wii Virtual Console game, although I'd be shocked if it didn't kind of get promoted to the more modern Nintendo systems now. But, uh, but there are kind of modern ways to, to find these games, other than, of course, getting the cartridges, which is the coolest thing. But uh, so ActRaiser, to give some people idea the idea of what the premise of the game is, because it feeds into why would you have a game that is a world sim and a side-scrolling action game at once? And in this case, it was because you are playing as, quite literally, God is the premise of the game. That is who you are. Now, in the American version, they censor this, because that's what Nintendo of America did at that time. That You couldn't have any references to religion or anything like that. So you were actually playing as, uh, like, the master's helper or some such thing. Uh, yes, the master, that's right. Uh, and the villain of the game in the American version is Tanzra, uh, but in Japan, of course, it is actual Satan. So, you know, 
<laughs> so uh, that's kind of the and the thing is, even as a kid, I mean, I saw through. I knew exactly what what was. It was not not very well hidden for sure. Uh, uh, and so the premise is that the world is in chaos and like kind of Satan is ruling over the world basically. And then the loop of the game is that you come down like there's each region of the globe, and at first you have to come down and kind of cleanse. The area initially, and that's a side-scrolling action part. So you come down and you you take the form of a, a there's like a statue, and you kind of inhabit that statue, a statue of like a mighty warrior, and you come down and take control of that, and so you kind of become incarnate in this statue, and you fight these monsters, and there's a boss fight and everything, and that clears the area away for citizens to start farming and doing things, and then you enter into the sim portion of the game where you direct your civilians, your subjects, I should say, your worshippers, whatever you call them, to make fields, to build homes. Uh, there's kind of a tech tree in the game, kind of, where it starts out as like kind of thatched huts. And it doesn't really progress, I think, beyond maybe sort of Roman level technology. So you're not like seeing your citizens build like Google, you know. <laughs> um, uh, but like, you know, you do see them progress. And as you progress, you get more powerful because they're making offerings to you. They're finding things for you. So there's this cool thing where uh, as you build up society, they're actually giving you stuff. Because then what happens in each area is that then they'll discover some evil lair or some monster will come and cause trouble. Something will happen where you have to come back again. You have to incarnate yourself again in this statue. And and I'm hearing my cat now walk on boxes. I just moved. This is a brand new recording studio, I should say. Just moved into it. Uh, just moved into it these past couple of days. So there's boxes everywhere and my cats are walking on them. But anyway, you have to do this last side-scrolling action portion and you do that and then that particular zone of the planets in the clear then you move on to the next one and to the next one and man there's so many good things about act razor uh the uh just the world building of it is just incredible it's like totally convincing uh you know and because of that it, it the immersion is is really the highest you'll see in a in an early game a game that that old sometimes you'll hear people say that boy, I cried at this moment in a game, and I just cringe. I just really, you cried at that. I've never, I've never, I have to admit, I've never cried. I've cried in, in rage, but never out of <laughs> emotion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I can't say I've done a lot of that either, but like, I can't recall as a kid if I cried playing Act Razor, but. At the same time, uh, there's some genuinely touching moments in that in that storyline as your, you know, subjects, uh, like, you know, kind of do things. Like, there's this uh, incredible little plot line with with how music is created. Like, because these are supposed to be, I think, the first peoples, I think, or something like that. And so they invent music at some point. And just, you know, not to spoil the game for people, just the way that's done... Uh, is super cool and, and genuinely touching, which is rare for any game, much less a game that old. So um, I don't suppose, I think Act Razor is one of the ones on my list that you did not play. Is that right? I haven't played that one either, yeah. Not yeah. played. Uh, but as a fan of JRPGs, because you love Final Fantasy, I know that, uh, I think you would really dig this because it kind of ha- it kind of comes from the same primordial soup 
as yeah. a lot of the games you like. So uh, that would be one I would. I think I, I, I mean, would I definitely would like look the, at the combat, the side-scrolling combat. But I think I really like kind of the Sim City part of it, and like leveling up stuff, and like the Sim aspect. Because I'm a huge fan of Castle Sims, any type of like. Oh, we gotta farm this, or we gotta do this, or get these resource like harvesting resources, and 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 I think at the time that must have been like mind blowing because I don't think there were. I mean, there was. Oh yeah. Sim City, oh yeah, for sure. I mean, not much other than that was there. There's probably like ten, I think, hundred million games that like that. <laughs> we'll get the emails. We'll just throw them away. That's right. No, no, at that time, that was definitely, especially on the console, you have to understand, I mean, what was going to be in that genre is probably going to be on the PC at that time, uh, as it would be today, I think. And so, yeah, definitely very unique and certainly simplified version of, of, of a sim, but simplified in a way that works for that game. They, they released a sequel, but sadly, they eliminated the sim portion. It was just side-scrolling action, and it didn't do nearly as well, I think, both critically and probably commercially as well, uh, as well, because, you know, now you're just left with, like I said, a good action game, but, you know, that this was a, an era when you were going to go up against a Shinobi, or a Golden Axe, or Gunstar Heroes, or just, you know, name a, a side-scrolling action title, I mean, this was the era when the very best of those, like, uh, like the various Contra games, uh, you know, so that that's a really, if you don't have a unique hook, that's a tough road to, to hoe. So we've jabbered on enough about Actraiser. So Kip, why don't you tell me a game uh, on your list? In the 16-bit era, I'll stick with that. Um, I have to say Final Fantasy 3. And like, we can't really talk too much about, or this would be Final Fantasy 6 as well. I, I never remember what this is, although this is my favorite game. And then there's like a huge controversy over the, the, the nomenclature of that, that game. But um, it's pretty spectacular. And I would fail that assignment <laughs> you had at school for describing why this game is great. Um, the music is second to none. It's just fantastic. Um, it kind of immerses you in a, a really rich world. Um, like right off the bat, you're kind of like thrust in the middle of uh, 
action, which is is really great. And you're, it just kind of like, kind of came out of. I guess it didn't come out of. I mean, I guess this was also one of the first games I think that weeks up to it, I knew it was going to be released. So I played Final Fantasy two like crazy, and then even on the NES went back to play Final Fantasy the first one, which is pretty similar to Dragon Warrior. Um, but like I remember just getting like kind of hyped for it and then like saving up my money to buy it and then going to the store and buying it and like wow you know and then like the mode 7 seeing that for the first time like running on like the the, the chocobo across the open world was just mind-blowing like wow i've never seen anything like that in a game before it is like literally i, mean, I guess this did this is i guess this did kind of get i didn't cry but this took my breath away and i could legit legitimately say that um and like there was just nothing else like it at the time, and like I think I may have even you know played hooky from school to 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 go get this game, like uh, you know pretended to be sick or something, and then uh, wound up playing this all day. But unless it came out in the summer or something, but I remember just like the whole day I just did this, and then uh, nice. yeah. played the game, yeah, cool. and it was just phenomenal, and like it's so immersive, and I, I probably had. 80 plus hours sunk into it of just, you know, just not even like, just like grinding, but like loving, get, you know, just, you know, fighting uh, like those green cactuses because you got like a bunch of MP for that and nice, just like crazy stuff like that or, you know, going into the, uh, they had like auction houses and I mean, there's so many things to talk about with this game. We're really like just glazing over it. Like there's really, we could get pretty in depth on a lot of different aspects of it. For sure, and and this is actually a game that I'm playing with my children now, uh, because like my my oldest daughter loves Earthbound, and so I wanted another RPG to play that was similar, kind of in in combat style. Even though of course Earthbound and Final Fantasy are way way different thematically, and it's what really strikes me is I've been playing through this, and incidentally, it's also uh, Final Fantasy three slash six is is like my wife's favorite game of all time, so. Well loved is, uh, you know, that game really has just wonderful thumbnail sketches of the characters, like which is something when you play a modern JRPG, it's almost like you get, you know, things can get maybe a little overly melodramatic. Whereas here, it's like you're given this, you know, when when you're introduced to Locke or whatever, it's like, yep, that's the lovable rogue. I totally get that character. I understand who he is and and the design, what he's, yeah, the designs. I mean, it's yeah. all uh, the Yoshitaka Amano designs of the characters and they're just spectacular i mean they're really absolutely yeah mind-blowing and like i mean he's been at that doing that for three decades or more just and i don't know it's, it was just like every every aspect of it is like the this the music is phenomenal but i mean like the i guess the, there was always like the weird despondency of like the 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 character's thumbnail was kind of super, for the time it was very realistic or, I mean, it was obviously like an illustration of something, but then like your actual character on screen was kind of this pudgy little cartoony character that kind of resembled it, but um, yeah, I don't know, everything about it was just fantastic. I really can't say enough about like how phenomenal it was. And in that opera, I mean, really that opera sequence. There's like, yeah, uh, there's like a whole opera in it that you can that you get to experience as well. There's, you know, an, an auction house. There's just, like, all sorts of, like, 
full-on... No other game did anything like that. what it kind of added to those mechanics was this at the time, this high level of production values that stitched it all together and really told an interesting story, uh, you know, kind of better than any other game did before it, uh, the way it, it kind of goes somewhat chronologically out of order at the beginning, the way that intro happens. And you're not sure if that's what that intro scene is and how it kind of links up to the, the, the main character, uh, you know, it, it really just puts things together uh, in thematically in a way that few games would would do. I think so. Uh, the story know, really, is pretty robust for the time. Like it's it just, definitely, yeah. It's sort of the you know it, it might be you might say it's the peak of sixteen bit storytelling. I, I don't mm -hmm. think it gets much better than that in terms of that technology, what it could do. If you actually look at the circuitry of those boards, if you find a Final Fantasy three cartridge somewhere and take it apart. It's using like every square inch of that cart, that circuit board is every, whereas if you just get like your standard, you know, if you get like Bill Lambeer's combat basketball and you take it out, it's like the board in there is tiny, right? Shots fired, <laughs> shots fired. Right, right. It's just like a tiny little board. It doesn't need that much memory, but like with the Final Fantasy <laughs> three board, it's like the you're gonna, whole You're going to get beaten thing. up by Bill Lambeer. Better be careful. That's right. He's going he's gonna to track me down. <laughs> Hey, I, I spent good rental money at Blockbuster for <laughs> Billy and Beer's Combat Basketball. Uh, I played the hell out of that game, so... Uh, well, you can punch people and play basketball. Uh, so, I mean, what, what more could you possibly want from a basketball game? So, <laughs> um, so you know, I think what I'm going to do now, Kip, is I'm going to summarize mm -hmm. uh, the rest of my list simply okay. because, as I kind of knew would happen, this conversation would go long... I'll tell you what is sticking out. I think with every single game we've mentioned, I think there's one common thread uh, between all of them in, in that every single game that we've talked about has tremendous world-building elements to it. Like, you know, that that top layer I like to talk about is present in all of them. There isn't a single game that we brought up that's purely a systems-based game that that where the world is completely secondary and kind of doesn't matter very much. Uh, you know, like uh, there are certainly games that are really good that, that are super fun that I like a lot that I would say world building is still there, but not maybe as important. Like I love like the Monster Hunter games, love them, love them to death. But uh, yet, you know, I would say, yeah, yeah, world building is a thing that happens there. But that's not the first thing people think about when they play Monster Hunter. It's it's the experience of killing these monsters with their buddies and and kind of the emergence, the emergent gameplay that happens. Every game we decided to talk about as our favorite in this episode, even though there's innumerable honorable mentions like that that we could probably think of later, are games that 
they really paid attention to the world and and did it have internal consistency and logic and care? Were there characters that were cool? Were there environments that were that told a story that were interesting to be in? And that tells me something about both our tastes and about I think higher quality games and, got good and taste, kind of that's what it tells me. That's right. That's right. We, yeah. <laughs> It tells us that our taste is refined and the industry should bend to it. <laughs> cool, cool, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think we're kind of like... You can have... It's not to say that world building and narrative and story and characters and environments are like the only thing we care about because actually if that were true, our list would be a lot different. We would probably have things like... Uh, we would have uh, things such as uh, Quantic Dreams games on here, for instance, that are very polished and, and very story-based but are more limited interaction. We'd probably have Telltale game stuff on here, or probably some LucasArts Scum Engine adventure games, things like that. There's like lots and lots of stuff that uh, world build and character build like even better than the games we talk about, but then they kind of go off in that direction where the game systems and game design are all kind of you know, much more tertiary than the games we talk about here. So it's sort of like everything we like kind of has to sit in that sweet spot of it's definitely still a game. You're interacting with game systems and getting feedback from them and and building things and managing inventories and, and thinking about hitboxes and all those things, but there has to be some context to them, and that matters to us as, as well. So uh, anyway, uh, I think that's really good for uh, for today's episode. I hope everyone enjoyed that. Obviously, this is maybe just a little more surface level than we like to be. But when you talk about this many games, it's impossible not not to be uh, just a little bit uh, surfacey. Uh, but that's okay, because certainly our next episode will we'll deep dive into an individual game as we more normally do. So uh, let's remind our listeners where they can get in contact with us. For me, it's rthoward2 at gmail.com, rohogames.com, rohogames80 on Instagram, Roho Games on the Twitter, Roho Games on the Facebooks. Uh, Kip, how can they get a hold of you? Uh, you can hit me up at nervouspixels at gmail.com, uh, nervouspixels at artstation, and nervouspixels on Twitter. All right, awesome. So uh, if you happen to hear this right after Thanksgiving, which is probably when this episode will drop, I hope you had a great one. Hope you ate lots of food. So until next time, stay on the grid and keep well hid. 